You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. It is such a relief when Dave introduces me rather than our dear brother Ted, because never one mention is ever made of my age. So, whereas Ted has been an elder the longest at Living Word, by one way of looking at it, I'm chronologically the oldest elder now, since we've, the Lord has called home some of our senior <clears throat> elders of the past that we had the blessing of sitting under and learning from all those years. Well, let's just lift our time up to the Lord some more. We've already lifted it up a few times, but Father, we just thank you for the privilege of hearing your word openly in this country, and Father, we pray that that will continue, but we don't take it for granted. So we ask that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher this morning, and that you will light up in our hearts the things that each one of us needs to hear. Please encourage us, please challenge us, and we just thank you for giving us your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, well, uh, most of you, or hopefully all of us, have been diligently, uh, just one chapter a day, plotting through the book of Judges. And you're almost done. Um, as we know, Judges is quite a hodgepodge of commentary and stories, and uh, some are encouraging, some are discouraging. Um, they just leave your heart kind of heavy and hanging there. Um, today and tomorrow and Tuesday, we can look forward to, to some of those stories. But uh, this morning, uh, my goal is just to kind of give a, a little overview of some things with the book of Judges. Uh, since we got to hear Brother Carl preach uh, out of First Timothy last Sunday outdoors, uh, we haven't gotten to have any messages on Joshua, I mean on Judges yet, even though we're almost done with the book. So um, I'll, I'll mention a few overview things before we get uh, into, uh, we'll finish up just looking uh, a little more um, at Gideon and Samson. Uh, so stay tuned. You know why I'm going to talk about Samson. Okay. Um, so as, as one commentary put it, uh, at, at that time of history, um, the nation of Israel was kind of a, uh, they used the term confederacy of tribes. We know that there was no king. There was no really given central authority. It was just all... 12 tribes and, you know, two half-tribes um, kind of all put together in the, the promised land that God gave them. And we'll look at some of the lessons they learned and the purpose of that. Um, but just real quick, to fit it into um, a time context, for me, it's, it's easy for me to kind of go through books of the Bible and not really know exactly how they fit into the chronology. So um, I think... Carl has a slide for us here <clears throat> on 
time. Is, is there a slide for that? Or? Okay, thank you. So first of all, we know the famous Exodus when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea and God performed that just incredible mind-boggling miracle of opening up a body of water like that, a huge body of water. So that was around 1445 BC. And then um, the book of Joshua uh, started around 1405 and went to about 1375. Well, at that time, we know Joshua died, and it re-mentions that again at the very beginning of the book of Judges. Um, he died in about 1375. So that's where the book of Judges starts. And just to kind of give a bigger picture, David became king uh, just prior to 1000 BC. Okay, so we're like during the time period kind of between Joshua and, and then the beginning of the kings with Saul and then uh, David. So uh, in Judges being 1375 to about 1050, that is when Saul became king. So that's when Israel was screaming out for a king. And we'll mention this again, but obviously that wasn't God's best for them, but he gave in to their stubborn hearts and, um, and let them bear the consequences of that. Uh, and then Saul died in 1010, and as we know, that's when David became king of Judah uh, for seven years before coming, be becoming the whole king of Israel as a whole nation at that time. Okay, so again, we're at around 1375 to 1050, and on Wednesday we start reading Ruth, and it doesn't, historians don't pinpoint exactly when that was, but it was during the time of the judges. Okay, now, uh, it's possible that there were more judges, but the ones that were recorded for us, which could be all of the judges that existed, we don't necessarily know for sure, but um, there were 13 judges, and um, the one we know for sure was a woman, was Deborah. Um, and to be honest, I didn't look to see if some of those other names that I've never heard of before and I'm not familiar with, if any of them were women, but it doesn't say that any were women. Okay, so if we assume the other 12 uh, were men. And we know Deborah also was a prophetess, and uh, well, she was a, a gift to Israel at, at that time. Um, and we know, this is very important, uh, anybody here interested in baseball? Okay, or any here that used to be boxers? Okay, and, and Kevin in the back there. Okay, it said that one judge was left-handed. Okay, I don't know if you boxers ever tried to box against somebody that was left-handed, but I, I've never boxed, but they uh, say that can really throw people off. Um, so one was left-handed, it, it tells us. And then some, their ministry seemed to go for a while, and the effects of, of their ministry went longer. Um, some of them, three of them went as long as 40 years where the land was undisturbed and had peace until rebellion set in in the next set of uh, 
shall we say, the next regime came in and ruled uh, or overruled Israel. So uh, Othniel, Deborah, and Gideon, it said the land was undisturbed for 40 years, both during and after uh, their ministry, uh, until the next set of rebellion kicked in, unfortunately. Okay, so now let's just take a look at kind of the purpose that is blatantly spoken to us about the book of Judges. Um, if you can turn with me to Judges chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Again, Judges 3, 1 through 8. And part of what's recorded here was uh, Dave touched on at the end of the Bible study on Wednesday night. Uh, a very insightful question was asked, and Dave gave a very clear and articulate uh, answer to that. So it says, now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. So we know that Joshua's generation was the generation of conquest and of military victory. Now we know God won the battles for them, his angelic forces, uh, but Israel still had to use their swords and had to do physical battle, even though they had a lot of divine help uh, that made sure that they won the battle and didn't lose. Um, so then after Joshua and all of the elders during that time had died, okay, then, you know, all that generation had kids once they were in the land, and those kids grew up, and they didn't know war. They only had stories about the war, but... Uh, they hadn't actually physically been in battle and faced, you know, fierce people running at them and um, using weapons against them that they had to defend and ultimately overcome the enemy. So it, uh, it tells us here that God wanted that, uh, the next generation also to be trained as soldiers and to know war. And some might say, well, gee, God's a God of love. Why would he do that? Why would he want his people to be trained at war? You know, why, why war? What, you know, shouldn't they be a, a people of peace? I mean, they're God's people, and God is a God of peace. Well, we know that we face an enemy. Okay, not only the physical enemies, but we know behind the physical enemies, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, uh, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly places. So the devil wanted to stomp out God's people, and that has been repeated over and over again through history right up to the present minute of places on the earth and time periods that the most obvious was Hitler, but there were, you know, were many that have persecuted and tried to just eradicate the Jews. You know, there are those in the Middle East now that, uh, would really wish that uh, the land of Israel or that the Israelis would be totally wiped out. And so back then, God, you know, they had other nations that would have loved to just stomp them out. 
So God still wanted them to be trained at war. Now, God would help them, and God would make sure they won if they were following him, but he still wanted them to be able to pick up a sword and, uh, you know, use their slingshot and, you know, all the weapons that they, physical weapons they had in those days. Okay, and let's read further as, as far as it will explain more about the testing here. So these nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labathamath, something like that. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. So God was going to test their hearts through these enemies as well, because we know that with the enemies also came their myriad of foreign gods and idols that we've heard a lot of explanation and commentary about the idols over the last month because it has come up um, both in Bible study and uh, in several messages. So all of the other elders have spoken to that recently. Um, so God, through the book of Judges, during that time, God, one of the reasons he left some enemies in the land was to test Israel's hearts to see if they were going to walk with him and obey him and put him as number one in their life or if they were going to be fickle and sway to the right or to the left to follow and worship other idols. Okay, now we also know, and Dave uh, mentioned this on Wednesday, that God didn't totally eradicate all the enemies just like that when they went in with Joshua because otherwise... Um, the, it says the wild beasts would have, uh, should we say, reproduced too fast and would have overrun uh, the land and would have been very dangerous. You know, all these lions and tigers and bears and, you know, all whatever they had there. Um, so God, since he created all these animals, he knew all about that. So he had a plan to where the humans would stay ahead of the animals okay, and keep them at bay and keep the land safe, okay? So, um, so that was a reason also that God still left some foreign kings in the land, uh, but at the same time, each tribe of Israel was, once they became strong enough, to go in and conquer their inheritance that was laid out for them, that through the... Um, Lots that they picked it, they picked, you know, like picking a number from the hat kind of thing. Um, God directed each portion of the land of Canaan, the promised land, to, to go to different tribes. So it all fit together like a big jigsaw puzzle. Um, but as we have seen, some of the tribes were uh, not diligent to go in and conquer the land that God that had their name on it. It's like a present, a birthday present with their name on it, but they didn't want to open it because the paper was too tough and the tape was hard and they didn't have scissors. So, well, I guess I just won't open that birthday present. It's too hard to get into. It's kind of the way they were acting, which is we know. Like, are you crazy? You have a present right there with your name on it. 
open it, it's yours. But as we saw, some of the tribes were slow to open their present that God was giving them. Okay. So in verse 5, okay, it lists some of the nations. And in verse 6, it says that Israel took their daughters for themselves, now the daughters of the nations, as wives, and gave their own daughters and, uh, to their, in other words, the other nations' sons, and served their gods. So, as we know, it is written throughout the Old Testament, starting with the law, and then even um, when Israel came back out of captivity after the time of Daniel and Ezekiel, well, from their time in Babylon, um, Nehemiah and Ezra literally were pulling their hair out about how the nation of Israel was, again, intermingling with the nations that worshipped other, uh, other gods, worshipped idols, uh, and again, they were exchanging in marriage, and that just is like a death grip of the enemy on their lives to stop worshiping God and be distracted. Um, who is the best known for that, do you think, in the whole Bible that would do such a thing? Solomon, yeah, with 700 wives and 300 porcupines, he had a lot going on. He was a busy guy, more than just administrating Israel, and Solomon with more wisdom than anybody that's ever been on the planet except for Jesus himself when he was physically here, um, even he got led astray. So we know, just so translating that to, to New Testament times that we live in now, um, that men and women are to marry, uh, those or the believers in Jesus Christ should marry strong believers in Jesus Christ uh, and not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Okay, and sometimes it's hard to do that. Emotions and everything else, you know, can, as they say, love is a drug. And uh, people can get swayed very easily by someone who does not follow Jesus Christ but is very handsome or is very pretty or whatever. Um, so that's why we have to be so careful with that one. And it's all the way through the Old Testament and also mentioned in the New Testament. Both Peter and Paul said to take... You know, believers should take believing spouses. Um, no, no hedging on that. No ambiguity about it. Clearly stated. Um, and those of us here that have, that are married, some been married a really long time. Probably the Benlins have been married the longest um, of families. With well, Marilyn Dreer was married a long, long time to Bob and. Uh, Buck and Ann, a long time. I think Ted and Karen might be our, our all-time leaders right now of uh, couples where both spouses are still down here. Um, Don and I have been trying to catch up to them. We're 34, but man, they're, they're over 40. They're, they're like in the stratosphere somewhere. They've been married so long. Um, and all of us can testify of the blessings of having a believing wife or believing husband. Um, so when you do it God's way, you get God's results. Okay. So, and then the pattern, starting with exchanging uh, with unbelieving families um, and marriages and all, says the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord 
and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, whatever that is, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served that king eight years. Okay, in that cycle, so the writer of Judges, which many think probably was Samuel, uh, we don't know for sure, but many Bible scholars think it was Samuel, and Jewish history uh, kind of pins the, uh, the book of Judges to, to Samuel being the writer for various in, internal uh, literary reasons. Um, and time course and whatnot. But, um, so this is the cycle. So they're telling us at the beginning, and we just see this over and over and over again through this time period of the book of Judges that we're almost finished reading right now. And then what was the solution every time? Okay, Israel went down in the muck, worshipped other, other gods, and then what was the solution from there? Okay, so then they repented, they looked to the Lord, and then God would raise up a leader uh, that it says was full of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit came upon so-and-so. And then they had tremendous leadership abilities and um, zeal and faith in the Lord to go forward and lead Israel to overcome their enemies again. Okay, and as we know, this just kept going over and over again throughout the book, most of the book of Judges. Now, um, before we get into a couple of ex examples with Gideon and Samson, um, just going to go through a short laundry list kind of, of principles or things that we can kind of step back and glean from all of the, seeing all of these cycles of uh, sin and repentance, God's mercy and God's deliverance for his people until they did it again. Then they fell into sin again, and, and the same thing kept going on and on. So, uh, first of all, okay, it, to be God's people, obviously, who do you worship? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough, real tough one, isn't it? Um, so, you know, it's just like, Anything plus zero equals the number. One plus zero equals one. Ten plus zero equals ten, etc. It's kind of along that same logic. If we're to be God's people, and all through the history of Israel and whatnot, if they were to be God's people, we exalt and worship God only. And that's it. And when that is done, there is blessing. In other words, God is with us. Okay, and God will provide for us. So today, if we continue to walk with God, fixing our eyes on Jesus, as it tells us in Hebrews 12, then we're going to walk with God, and we're going to have his presence with us. doesn't mean it's going to be rosy. It doesn't mean there'll be no trials. doesn't mean there won't be persecution. doesn't mean you might even lose your life over it, as Ted Ted or Dave, one of you two mentioned earlier, um, as far as martyrs today that are dying for the name of Jesus, whether you're in North Korea or uh, other dictatorships on the planet, 
Um, every day, people are being killed uh, for the name of Jesus. And we can imagine the place that God is preparing for them. They're going to have the, the big house on the hill with a great view in heaven. Uh, you know, God has great things planned for them. I mean, he has great things planned for all believers, but those who, who lose their life for Jesus and are martyrs, obviously they, they have a special place. So that's principle number one, and, and obviously Israel broke that just repetitively. Second of all, sin is always destructive. Okay, whether it's a, we're doing it in secret, whether it's something that is blatant, whatever it is, uh, sin is always destructive. And the wages of sin is death. Many of us memorized that verse kind of early on in our Christian life after we received the Lord Jesus, started walking with him, we, we learned that verse. Some had that verse given to them when they were coming to Jesus. That was one of the verses in the gospel that helped lead them to Jesus. So the wages um, of sin is death, not just physical death, spiritual death, um, but just areas of destruction, aspects of destruction in our life that interrupts God's best plan for our life. We're still in his hand, still walking his plan, but to get the maximum plan from God, um, the more sin, the less you get, the less sin then you're walking in more of God's greatness and his tremendous plan for each one of us. Okay, number three, a very famous verse that many of us are quite familiar with, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. So uh, we know that Solomon prayed this in the prayer to God when dedicating the temple and all, and uh, all of Israel was, was before him, and he, he prayed this, but um, this, God didn't only give that to Solomon. It was illustrated all, th all through the Old Testament. If my people uh, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. So in other words, first we're turning to God and we're repentant. Okay, we don't, we're not going to follow our folly of sin that got us into this mess in the first place. We're going to turn from that and turn to God and obey him. So turn from their wicked ways. Then he will hear from heaven and will heal their land. So God did that over and over again throughout the whole book of Judges. So we can see that God kind of tied to that is that God is rich in mercy. It's kind of the same thing. God is love. God doesn't just have love like he has this great big water tower filled with love. But it can go down. If you drink a lot of water or you flush your toilet a lot of times, whatever it is, that water tank is going to go down. Or you have, you know, a lot of people living in your household with a lot of showers. You know, it, it goes down. Okay. Uh, faster. God doesn't have love. It's not like there's a tank that's going to start to go down and has to be filled up again so God has enough love to share with us. No. He is love. What? God, you are love? You mean it never changes? God tells us, I am the Lord. I change not. 
in Malachi? Wow. So God is love. Well, it says God is rich in mercy. He has so much mercy. We don't have to worry about him not having enough mercy to go around for you or for me. He's rich in mercy. And in Ephesians 2, 4, it says, but God being, when Paul is uh, telling about past life in Christ and then sharing the plan of salvation, he said, after talking about sin, he said, but God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us. So God showed this in the Old Testament and for each of our lives, we know God was merciful to reveal his plan of salvation to us, draw our hearts to himself to where we could come to him and have saving faith in what Jesus did on the cross. We know he extended his mercy to us there withholding the punishment that we deserve. Remember, you've all, we've all heard this before, grace is giving a gift that's not deserved, unmerited favor, whereas mercy is holding back the punishment that we deserve. In other words, regarding salvation, every human that's ever lived on the planet deserves one thing. What's that? Hell. That's what we all deserve because, as Ted mentioned, God is a holy God, and so everyone is separated from God, and everyone deserves hell. That's why God, being rich in mercy, he withheld that punishment, and through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, shedding his blood for our sin, raising him up from the dead, therefore, we don't have to go to hell. We get to go to heaven. Wow. So we get grace and mercy both. What a deal. Okay, so God showed this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament concept. Remember, uh, we've heard Dave say that Jesus is on every page of the, of the whole Bible, even in the Old Testament, where it doesn't say Jesus said like we have in the New Testament, um, even in the Old Testament. So God is rich in mercy. He withheld the punishment that Israel deserved. They deserved to stay in bondage to these horrible, um, abusive nations indefinitely. They turned away from God. They worshiped idols. Okay, you want to worship idols? Go ahead. Have at it. I'm not going to help you. And then they come and cry to him. He could have still said, I'm not going to help you. In fact, finally, he did say that once. But God is so rich in mercy. He, he couldn't continue to not help them. He just couldn't. It just wasn't part of who he was. He had to help them again. Okay, um, we serve a God that is so merciful and so gracious. So we see here on the pages of the Old Testament that God is merciful toward us. He withheld hell for us, for all believers in Jesus Christ, and has invited us to live with him and in heaven forever. So that's God's mercy as far as salvation. But we all have individual situations where we sin. And God doesn't always do this, but sometimes he really, um, should we say, bails us out. Um, you know, like a student that went and played baseball one night when they had the test the next day. And 
they had studied quite a bit already, but they went out and played baseball instead, knowing that they should have stayed home that particular night to study for this big physics test or whatever. And they eked out, they needed a C to pass the course and they, they got a C by one point, that kind of thing. We know that God has bailed us out numerous times when we didn't exactly do everything we, we should have. Uh, sometimes we need the spank and we need to learn the lesson and he purposely won't bail us out. Um, but there are times when he does. So God is rich in mercy not only for salvation, but also for individual situations that come up in our life and our walk with him. Um, he doesn't want us to abuse the privilege and say, oh, well, God's merciful and, and be flippant about it. No, not at all. But God is rich in mercy. He has bailed all of us out numerous times. Um, generally, when we had a repentant heart and we knew we blew it. Okay. Another thing we can see from the book of Judges is that God raises up leaders and God will use them to accomplish his purpose, but we know that leaders can have flaws too. Now, I know some of you are very shocked by that. I mean, you look at the living word elders and, you know, you just see five perfect guys. I mean, flaws? Are you kidding? You mean elders can have flaws? Hmm, gee, I don't, not in my church they won't. Okay, well, all of us are aware of that, that leaders have flaws too, and some of the judges had flaws. And that's part of our interesting journey on planet Earth, that even though God raises up gift ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, gifts to the body of Christ to, to raise people up in their gifts and callings to be used by God, he can even use flawed flesh for his purpose and to his glory. So that's hope for us elders for sure, but that's hope for all of us as believers because oftentimes we feel, man, how could God ever use me? Are you kidding? Here's my laundry list of all the weaknesses in my life. God used me. And we'll, we'll see this again in a moment with Gideon, but... Um, that's hope for all of us. God can use anybody who's available. If we're available to God, I guarantee he will use you. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. Evangelism, Friday night with outreach. I pulled my car in, and I was exhausted. I've had this cold that I've had for like six weeks now, and went to my doctor about it and had my annual physical Tuesday and talk to him about it again. Um, and it's, it's kind of made me more tired um, so far this summer. So I haven't gotten everything done on my list I wanted to have done by now, but that's the breaks. Uh, God is still with me. But so I, I pulled in and I was tired. I said, Lord, I ask that somehow you will use me tonight. I don't know how you could. I just feel like a lump, but please use me. And uh, typically I stand on the other side and pass out tracks as people roller skate by. Uh, some of them slow down enough to actually take one. A lot of them whew, just keep on zooming by. But um, 
and, and I see on this side of the street, folks are engaging in conversation and having these great conversations and witnessing and whatnot. I said, Lord, tonight, can you please provide me at least just one conversation? Well, this one guy came by who is part of the chess tournament. The last two Saturdays, there have been chess tournaments over at the hotel. And this gentleman was just the, the nicest guy. And he taught history, I think high, high school age, and he knew all about the history of different religions. So he stopped and talked about history of religion and whatnot. And we got into a whole conversation. So I, you know, gently shared parts of the gospel uh, to what he was willing to hear. And then we got talking about exercise and whatnot because he goes to the gym, but he doesn't know what to do. And um, for those that don't know me, that's, uh, I teach that. And so we had a good time talking about exercise, and then we slid back into my testimony, got to talk about Nikki Cruz, the gang leader coming to Christ from David Wilkerson and all these things. And then we slid back to <clears throat> talking about low back exercise. And then we slid back at the end, finishing up talking about the Lord. And I walked with him back to his hotel because his two grown sons were waiting for him back at the hotel, but yet he had stopped to talk. And this conversation was at least a half an hour. And the Lord just answered that prayer. Even so, every one of us, even when we don't feel like we have it, uh, whether it's just in a given moment in time or whether it's your whole life, Lord, how could you ever use me? God will use anybody. And again, we'll see that momentarily uh, when we touch on the life of Gideon. And then lastly, we can see from the book of Judges. It's another example in the Bible. Um, book of Daniel was a great example of this, that God can use sin. He can use pagan nations to accomplish his purpose. Dave has explained this to us a few times over the last few years very eloquently. And here again, we're seeing that God was using pagan nations to test Israel's heart. So that was accomplishing God's purpose. You know, well, how about these people are worshiping idols and they're still in the land of Israel? God, how can you do that? Well, he was using those nations to accomplish his purpose, to reveal to Israel where their heart really was. So again, God can use any pagan nation, uh, even North Korea, uh, with nuclear missiles and everything else. God is, can use them and just by faith, I guess he is somehow using North Korea, uh, even with their perse horrible persecution of Christians, he's using them to accomplish his purpose. So obviously it's our job to continue to pray that, you know, that leader would come to Christ or God would remove him or whatever. But uh, <clears throat> behind the scenes, again, we know from the song we sing, God is always working. Okay, so let's take a quick look uh, it's just a couple of lessons from uh, Gideon, and then we'll finish up and, and mention a couple things about Samson. Okay, so first of all, in Gideon 6.15, I mean, it's about Gideon in Judges, <clears throat> excuse me, 6.15. So both Gideon and Samson have the distinction of having angelic visitation in their home situation. 
So in this case with Gideon, the angel came directly to Gideon. Probably we're thinking maybe a young adult Gideon. Okay, so uh, in verse 15, uh, the angel, or he said to the, I'm sorry, that is not the verse that I want yet. Yes, okay. He said to the angel, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. So just to kind of continue the conversation we started a moment ago, first of all, raise your hand if you were the youngest child in your family. Okay, we see a, a few here. Um, and how many of you um, ever have felt like you were an underdog in a situation? Anybody here ever been an underdog? You know, an underdog is somebody that looks like, you know, they're not going to win. It's the, the horse race that's had the poorest, or the, the race horse that's had the, you know, the slowest times and the poorest record but barely got in or, uh, you know, somebody made the Olympic finals but, you know, they're, they're not expected to do anything because the big name people with the fast times are going to, you know, leave them in the dust, maybe lap them if the, if the race is long enough. So... All of us have felt at some time, or even if in sports, whether you were a boxer and the other boxer was supposed to be able to take your head off, or um, in my case, I used to run track. And when I was in ninth grade, I was all of five feet tall and 100 pounds. And in ninth grade, you know, Racy had a choice of going on the middle school team or on the varsity, I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. I'll go for varsity this year, see what happens. So I'm standing, sometimes there were races where guys were like 6'2", 6'3", um, thin, of course, but uh, there was once a, a famous runner that was 6'6", six six, and he weighed 155 pounds, and he ran like 10,000 meters. Like, he had to carry that whole frame for six miles worth, okay, but he was skin and bone, so it didn't matter, and I was skin and bone, so, uh, so I was, every race I was in, pretty much, at least early on, I was the underdog, because, you know, the other teams, we'd stand at the, at the starting line, and it's like, look at this little kid over there, he should be on the junior high team, what's he doing in the varsity race, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's the way it goes, so, um, in most cases, I could make them pay for it. But, um, but all of us have felt like we were underdogs. You know, it could have been, uh, you know, just our, our height or, you know, any physical attribute. Um, it could have been a past failure, something, you know, some mistake we made and there were some ramifications or whatnot or we got fired from a job, whatever it would be. Anything that might discourage us, demoralize us. Um, and make us feel like, oh man, God could never use me. And, and there are all kind of reasons where we feel like an underdog. Well, thankfully, Gideon is a great example, just as Moses. 
Moses, I'm sure, could do being raised as Pharaoh's son, Pharaoh's daughter's son, uh, in the, you know, the king's household. He could do a lot of things really well. He was well trained in a lot of things, but we know he felt like an underdog with his oration skills. He wasn't a skilled public speaker, and now God was appearing to him from a burning bush to tell him to go and be a mouthpiece for Israel and deliver my people. Mouthpiece? God, are you kidding? Who are you talking to? Um, God, you got the wrong guy. And God, Moses took him to the point where we know it says that the anger of God burned against Moses, but yet God stuck with Moses and provided Aaron. And by the end, who's the mouthpiece anyway? Moses, okay? So Moses felt like an underdog as far as his oration skills, to use oration skills to deliver anybody from anything. So all of us can feel that way. So Gideon certainly felt that way. But let's just review what, what we've read here. Um, we'll start with verse uh, 12. Okay, so an angel is appearing to Gideon. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. So here's this guy who inside is feeling like this and like this and like this as far as leading anybody into battle. In his mind, he's a nobody. And this angel is coming to him saying, valiant warrior. Same deal. He had to be looking behind him to one of his servants or one of his ten servants or something. He couldn't have been talking to him. So God sometimes will talk to each of us. He'll put a task in front of you. It might be God puts in your heart to seek out a certain profession. Like it might be uh, God puts in your heart to become a doctor, but yet, or, um, you know, to go for your master's degree or to apply for a certain kind of job where you didn't have quite the training you, you felt you would have liked to have had that you think they probably want. And we feel like a nobody. We're an underdog. But yet the Lord directs you to apply for that job or to enter that school program or whatever it is. And so the Lord is saying to you, and obviously it might not be valiant warrior. Uh, you don't need to be a warrior to apply for that particular job. It's not to, you know, go to Iraq or anything. But... Um, it might be a security guard. It might be uh, sitting in a desk doing something. It might be answering a phone. It might be keeping data. You know, whatever it might be, you might feel like, well, I wish I had more training, more background in that, but God is directing me, and they have an opening, so I'll apply for it. Well, the Lord may just speak to your heart, you know, oh, mighty one, maybe not valiant warrior, but oh, mighty one, saying, I'm going to bless you with that. So let's not let our own feelings and our own underdog complex bog us down and prevent us from experiencing where God wants to take us. 
So that's what God finally was able to do with Midian once uh, God convinced, I mean, with um, Gideon to go against Midian um, after God finally got him convinced, kind of renewed his mind a little bit. Okay, then Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. But the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? So that's what God, whenever we feel like an underdog, but yet we know the Lord is leading us in a certain path or for a certain task. Just go back to this um, Judges chapter 6, okay, verse 14. Jot that one down. Judges 6, 14. And read that over about 15 times and let God stir up your faith and send you uh, for the purpose that he is sending you. Because as we sang earlier, um, through our God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will overcome the enemy. So he did that with Gideon, and he'll do that with us. And then we also, obviously, the other highlight of the story of Gideon is God trimmed down a little army of uh, 32,000 warriors down to 300. So, again, uh, God can make the odds look like they're totally against you. But, as we say, if Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Okay, um, now let's finish up. Just going to point out a couple of things with um, Samson. We won't turn to any passages because we're, we're about out of time here. But um, let's get the right one here. Okay, so again, in this case, Gideon's mom had an angel. Uh, mom and dad had an angel come to them and tell them that this barren wife was going to have a son. So same kind of situation as uh, God told Abraham that Sarah was going to have a son. God told Hannah, you know, when she cried out, uh, God provided a son for her when her womb was barren uh, and Samuel was born. With Elizabeth, uh, John the Baptist was born and she was old like Sarah was. And then marry with the Lord Jesus, okay? So this is another example in Scripture of uh, God taking someone who certainly wasn't thinking of having a baby, in this case was barren, and told them they were going to be not only uh, have a baby, but it was going to be a Nazarite. In other words, totally set apart to total 100% service to God. Now we know that uh, Samson did judge Israel for 20 years, so it sounds like there was some good productivity there. Um, so his life was not a total bust, and we know he did defeat um, the Philistines numerous times in certain magnitudes. But obviously what Samson is best known for besides his tremendous physical strength with uh, increased 
uh, fight or flight reaction and sympathetic stimulation, increased neurological impulses going to his skeletal muscles to be able to kill a thousand uh, warriors with one jawbone and you know the things that he did were just amazing the physiology of it is is just mind-boggling but um, we know that um, we won't turn to it but you can jot down in your notes first John 2 15 and 16 first John 2 15 and 16 a verse that comes from this pulpit fairly consistently because the principles are so important so we know that Samson is a great example of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So number one, he wanted to marry an unbeliever. <clears throat> and that's a very interesting little verse there. Uh, Judges 14, chapter 4. I looked in you know, these parallel commentary things where you can look at a bajillion commentaries all on the same verse. And... Um, I had something printed out, we don't have time to read it, but basically it said that kind of just like Israel wanted a king, it's like, okay, God said, you can, I'll give you, you can have a king, I'll provide you a king. That's not my best for you, you're sinning against me, but if that's what you really, really want to do, okay, I'll give you a king. So, like the kid that wants the extra piece of pie, and mom says, no, no, but finally you give in, you get worn down, but give them the pie, but then the consequence is then they go to bed with a tummy ache because they ate too much pie. So in this case, some of the writers of the commentaries feel that that's what God was doing here, that he told his parents, you know, give me this girl, and they said, but she's not from Israel. She's not a believer. And so, um, you know, pick, pick someone who's a believer, they told him, and from Israel. Uh, and, and follow the law of God implicitly. But he so wanted this other girl, it's like they finally like, okay, if that's what you want, and that God was essentially saying to Samson, okay, just like in the future Israel's going to want a king and I'll give in. You really want this girl? Okay, I'll give in. But I'm still going to use it to my, it's not my best, but I'm going to use it to my glory. In other words, he's still going to use it for his purpose, which did get him engaged with the Philistines for God to start to bring judgment against the Philistines through Samuel. But that it may not have been God's best plan. That wasn't the number one way he was going to do it. But Samson really wants this unbelieving woman. So, okay, take the unbelieving woman. I'm still going to use it. Um, but it wasn't God's best plan for him. So that's the way some of the commentaries interpret that verse, because that can be puzzling, like, well, you know, it, it says that, you know, God was in it and whatnot. Um, how could God want this Nazarite to marry an, someone from a different nation worshiping other gods? It just, it doesn't add up. Well, that's why God let him have what he wanted, and then he kind of had to bear some consequences, too. And then the pride of life, when Samson was holding the two pillars at the very end and was going to kill more in one instant than he had in his whole fighting career so far, okay, why did, why did Samson want to do that? Was it because, God, I want your name to be lifted up. I want your name to be glorified. 
doesn't say that. It says, so I can avenge myself for my eyes. He wanted to avenge against his enemies, okay? Take revenge against them. That was his motivation. So more kind of the pride of life. Uh, I'm going to beat them in the end anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he did. But again, his heart was not totally pure toward God, although he, it, it does sound like he, he did have some repentance there. Um, only God knows. Um, so Samson had lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. So obviously, he's an example of how not to walk with God, how not to live. Um, so we'll, we'll just leave it at that. Okay, so in closing, we know that in the last verse of Judges, Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see that over the years in our country and all over the world, uh, the relativism of, you know, there's no clear right and wrong. People, they don't even want the Ten Commandments up in courtrooms, things like that. Uh, that's going to change society. And morally and socially and all, it, it's going to go downhill, as we've been witnessing um, in our country for many years, um, especially Ted. He's watched it for a lot of years. So, um, you know, we see just tremendous increase in violence, even in our own city, tremendous increase in what God calls sexual immorality, whether it's fornication, um, sex before marriage, or whether it's adultery, sex with, with someone that is not your spouse, um, it's just, just ramped up more and more over the years. Even though Jesus says, um, I made them man and woman, and one man for one woman, and you live, you know, basically until one dies, um, is, is God's best plan. Um, but um, we know the sin of man can get in there and, and change things. Um, so we see all that in the book of Judges. And how did they win in the book of Judges? Well, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So lastly, just end with Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in J Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth. So all of us, we can focus our efforts being a light in our neighborhood, in our apartment building, in our, uh, you know, at our jobs and all. And also uh, we've seen God do some great things during our evangelism times. Um, and then also prayer, committed prayer to pray for the decadent society that God will bring revival and bring many people to himself. So, but we need the Holy Spirit to do it. Okay, so we, we can pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon uh, each of us individually uh, and also just as a congregation, even to a higher level. Um, as, as we, in quote, want more of God and want to see God move in greater ways. So. Our being 
willing to participate in evangelism, be used by God, even in the times when we feel like, man, I can't be used, and also to pray for us to intercede for God to move um, in our country and in our neighborhood and everywhere we go. So, Father, we thank you for your great power. We thank you that you didn't do great things only uh, in the book of Genesis or only during the time of the judges or uh, Father, you do great things today, and we ask that, uh, Lord, you will use each one of us, even at times when we feel like we're the underdog, we ask that you would use us in even greater ways. And you said uh, in your word, um, Lord, that when essentially we're empty of ourselves, that's what, when you can use us in the greatest way. And we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.